What is Dhamma? What is Dhamma all about? What is the practice about? And then you can peg yourself on how you want to practice and how far you want to go. But the idea is you, you have to have clarity on what Dhamma is about and what the practice is about. Okay? So, this entire series, if you can, you should, you should try and attend from beginning to the end. Don't do buffet spread. I don't eat salad. I only go for dessert. You know, don't do a buffet spread. Try and attend all the lectures because they are linked, they are connected. Okay? Why do we start on a story on the Dhamma? Why do we start with the Buddha? And the reason is because had it not been for the Buddha, there would have been no Dhamma story. So any understanding, any understanding at all about what Dhamma is about has to start with clarity on who the Buddha was. Who the Buddha was and what he stood for. If you have no clarity on that concept, then your understanding of what is Dhamma can be skewed. Okay? So, Buddha, the man and his mission. So, for today, this is the, these are the themes that we're going to cover. Was he real? How do we know? Who was he? What was he? Why is he important? And why do we know, need to know him properly? Now, what's the difference between who the Buddha was and what the Buddha was? When we ask about who, who the Buddha was, we're talking about biographical details. His birth, his life, what he did, that sort of thing. What he was is his role. What role did he play? What significant things did he do? And why are they significant? Okay? So, was he real? Some of you may look at me with this aghast look and say, excuse me, in a Buddhist setting, you're asking whether the Buddha was real? I think it's a relevant question. I mean, you're just assuming he was real because somebody said so. Well, my mother says so, so he has to be real, right? How do we know that? How do we know that this man existed? I mean, incidentally, he lived a long time ago. Someone will tell you Superman is real. And we were even watching flying around. But we know he's not. So, how do we know that the Buddha was real? Okay. Sources. Meaning to say, from where do you draw the information that tells you that such a person existed? We're only proving existence. Huh? We haven't even proved anything yet. We're just proving existence. And the best information comes from somebody who lived about 200 plus years after the Buddha. He wasn't even from the Buddha's time. And he was Emperor Asoka, uh, first emp emperor of, a f of probably India's first empire, the Mauryan Empire. And he left behind edicts carved on pillars, rocks, and caves. Now, this was, a, this was a, an emperor, a king of the greatest magnitude in India. 
for him to acknowledge the existence of a spiritual teacher, I think it's reasonable to assume that that person should have existed. Okay? And in all these edicts, what did he say? He mentioned a couple of things. There was one in particular where he mentioned this was the place where the Buddha was born. So we have evidence that about 200 years after Buddha's time, they believe he was born there. So that's good evidence. And then there were also edicts that talk about his teaching. Uh, different suttas were mentioned. Given that they mentioned his teaching, we can assume, reasonably assume, he was a teacher. And his teachings were commonly known. Has to be commonly known, right? Because if he were not commonly known, how would this man know it? And then you say, oh, yeah, but he's emperor. Emperor got a lot of things to learn. Eh? Emperor very busy, you know. The emperor got time to know your teaching. Your teaching must be quite commonplace. Lah. So people must have known about it. Okay? So that the, the best, from a historian perspective, the best evidence that this man existed must be from this archaeological material. Okay? But it goes beyond that. The details that we know of him, all those details that we know of him actually came from these other sources. Canonical texts from, from the Buddhist community. Buddhist canonical texts. And those were captured originally via what we call oral tradition, meaning to say people talk, people People ex explain things through uh, verbal communication. They just, just talk and then they sit around the fireside and, and recount stories and so on and so forth. So the canonical texts, and when I say non-Buddhist texts, what do I mean? Actually, if you're familiar, uh, you know that the way they, from, the hin from the Hindu angle, they, they talk about the Buddha being the ninth incarnation of Vishnu. So there was this mention about Buddha from non-Buddhist sources, okay? Other literary works, people got really excited about Buddha. So, commentaries, literature, all over the place. You see, you have to be a source of inspiration for people to want to write about you. Otherwise, there won't be all this proliferation of material about your life, much of which is a little fictional. But nevertheless, they got, they got very carried away telling stories about you. You must have been quite a prominent person in, in that time. Okay? So, we know he was real. Now the question is, who was he? Biographical details. My favourite part of the talk. And it is depressing, sketchy, corrupted, and I say unavoidable. What do I mean by that? You know, he lived a long time ago. 2,500 years is a long time by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah? Who says not? Actually, it's very, very short. It's very long, okay? Given that it is so long, and given that the people in those days are not like you guys take foul notes all the time. They don't even write. They don't write. They don't read. What do they do? They talk a lot. 
And we know when we talk, what happened? Corrupted ideas, right? Oh, your broken telephone's everywhere. It's very normal. So, the result of a long, long time and the result of many, 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 many people talking about you, the result of that is all kinds of strange materials have surfaced about his life. And we don't really know which part truly is him. Sorry, we know some parts, but those parts that we know are actually very thin. Okay? So what do we know? We know that he born roughly about 2,500 years ago. And you know, you, you all have dates, right? I'm sure the ones, the, the, those of you who are studying this uh, formally for examination will have some dates that you were supposed to memorize. I hate to tell you this, uh, those dates are, are still being debated. They are still being debated. In fact, the debate is so intense, they are debating about the century. Not just the year, you know? So it's not like, like uh, uh, like four, five, six. It's not like that. It's the century, fourth century, third century, sixth century, fifth century. They're debating the century when he was born. When did he live? But you know, for our purpose, does it really matter? Seriously, does it matter that it's 2,500, 2,400, or 2,300? Discount of what 10% uh, unacceptable. No, I mean it's still a long time ago. So doesn't matter. 2,500 is a nice number to remember, okay? I, I, I will always say 2,500 until, they all, until the scholars finally agree on the date. And I doubt they will. Okay, we know that he was born in... Uh, he lived, not born. He was born in Lumbini, but he lived in a place called Kapilawatu, which is in modern-day Nepal. Many of you would have visited, I assume. Uh, we know that he was the eldest son of one of the chieftains of a tribe known as the Sakyan. And we know that the Sakyans were ancient tribe, meaning to say they were older than 2,500 years old. Okay? They're a very old tribe. What it means is, being such an old tribe, the odds are they would have been amongst the first lot of people who invaded India. They are Aryans, they came from Central Asia. And they would have been amongst the first lot of people who invaded India and stake up chunks of land from themselves. That is why the Sakyans were very rich. Eh, you go in and you choke the agricultural land, you know? So you can be very rich. The father wasn't a king. Read book one. Father wasn't a king, the father was a chieftain, okay? Uh, but in the old days, they would have called him Rajas, so that's okay. And he was probably the eldest son. We know that he lost his mother at birth. How do we know that? Because Ananda, in one of the conversations, said, You were brought up by Mahaprachapati Gautami. Your mom passed away. So we knew that happened. We just don't know whether it was the seventh day after his birth. We don't have that kind of resolution, okay? And he was brought up by his maternal aunt and stepmom. But the more important thing is he was much loved. He didn't have an abused childhood. <laughs> the Buddha had a good childhood, okay? And he himself talked about having been very pampered. He had three palaces built for him to tie him over the difficult 
seasons, the difficult weathers. We know he had got a couple of siblings. Nanda, you must know. Uh, many cousins. We know that they spent a lot of time playing together. These cousins, they, they played together. They, were, they had actually a very good relationship. So not surprising that when he came back, when he came back to, uh, to the Sakyans to teach them Dhamma, a lot of his cousins went to join him. Not funny, uh, you may not realize how significant it was for these pampered princelings. These guys are all rich people, you know. They became monks. They are the monks of 2,500 years ago. It's not even funny. And you laugh, seriously. <laughs> it's, it's tough. It's a, it was a very tough life. But they had sufficient faith in him to want to join his ranks. He got to salute these monks. You understand that? Okay? Doted on by his father, pampered lay life. Okay, we have said all that. Next. Oh, okay. Groom for leadership position on the tribal council. What does that mean? It means that the Buddha was prepared for organization work. So not surprising that he knew how to organize the Sangha very effectively. He was trained. He, or he had some training. He was being prepared. Okay. Now, uh, the Sakyans ruled by democracy. It's sort of rudimentary democracy. So a bunch of senior leaders sit together, vote together, and they make decisions collectively. And being the eldest son, he would be expected to take over from his father when the time comes. Okay? Details of his adult life were sparse. We don't even know, incidentally, we don't even know the name of his wife. You think you do. But that came from the commentaries. Okay? We know he had a son. And we know that he must have married a lot. Must have, uh, the word. I didn't say he had. I said he must have been married a long time before he had a son. How do we know that? For those of you who attend the Wednesday class, you know that in those days, people get married around 15, 16, right? 14, 15, the girls are at the peak of her beauty. 15, 16, they must get married, otherwise, past the peak. <laughs> so, O levels, okay? <laughs> past the peak. He would have married, being, being the eldest son of a prominent tribal leader, he cannot breach convention. He has to marry at the correct time, which would have been 15, 16, or thereabout. Get it? So, he must have been married around there and got a son much later on because we know that by the, son, by the time the boy came along, he was in his late 20s. So, Okay? Uh, and we know the son was called Rahula. That one, that one everybody knows. That one is correct, okay? He even had suitors named after Rahula because he was teaching the son things. When, he, when the boy was born, he left home. It was believed he's about 29 when that happened. The point I want to make, this two point. He was considered very young when he left home. And that would have been a controversy. These two points are important because there were implications about understanding him and also about what he could do. You think about it. 
This is someone who will breach conventional thinking. He will do what is necessary because it has to be done, he will do it, in other words. And he doesn't care what people say. At that point, if convention, conventional thinking at that time is, yes, you should leave home for homeless life in your old age when your hair is white. White. Not when the hair is black. Which is why in the sutta, you will come across the expression time and again, saying that you are black hair. And your teacher is sue or not. <laughs> they had, he had a lot of these little problems. Doubts about whether or not he knew what he was talking about. And doubts about his attainment. Okay? Ah, okay. Read, uh, read. Possibly elicit unfriendly comments. Next. Now comes the crux of the story. Uh, 29, thereabout, thereabout, he left home and he had decided to look for one thing, to go in search of one thing. He went in search of a way out of Dukkha. In other words, he went in search of happiness. This point has to be understood. He didn't go in search of the truth. He didn't go in search of the meaning of life. Those are philosophical points that you and I, we all jiapa right? We go in search of the truth. We go in search of, of meaning in life. We all happy ma? So go in search of meaning in life. He went in search of happiness. He was a practical man. There was a problem. The issue is, I'm not happy. I'm stressed. I have pain in my heart. I got to figure out how to resolve this pain. So the Buddha's quest was about resolving a practical problem. And the problem was, there is pain. There is dukkha in life. How do I fix that? Okay? You need to understand this. Because if you don't understand this fundamental point, then you are going around saying, Dhamma is about the real meaning of life. Salah, eh. Dhamma is about truth. No. Dhamma is about truth when you see it. The truth of how your mind works. Dhamma is not about truth per se, with nothing dangling there, you know, truth, truth. No, okay? So, practical problem, practical solution. The engineers would love him, okay? There's a problem, fix it. In search of a way out of Dukkha. Okay? Oh, okay. Uh, now, in the old days, during Buddha's time, there were two methods of realizing truth. Okay? Reali spiritual realization. In, the, in those days, there were two methods. Actually, the reality is there were three methods. There were three methods. There's someone here looking very distraught. There were three methods. Method one was just enjoy life. Yes? There was a whole bunch of scholars, uh, there was a whole bunch of philosophers who were just enjoying life. 
that was a better one. Buddha rejected that because he enjoyed life for 29 years. It didn't work. So he, ah, cannot be. Went off to look for the other two methods, okay? The other two methods were, one, meditation. Deep meditation. So he went to the celebrity yoga teacher of the days, okay? They, they are famous. They were famous. You don't believe they were famous? If you read the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, there was a last sutta delivered by the Buddha, yeah? There was a mention right towards the end, just before the Buddha reached Kusinara, he ran into a guy called Pukasa, a lay person called Pukasa, right? Pukasa said that he was a disciple of Alara Kalama. Alara Kalama was the, one of the two teachers that the Buddha went to. Why is that so famous? Alara Kalama at that time has been dead for 40, 45 years. By the time the Buddha met Pokasa, Alara Kalama had been dead for 45 years. He died, remember, before the Buddha was going to teach? Ah, which means to say that a man who had died 45 years ago, still able to command the respect and love of a disciple, how, how great is that? Must be quite big time lah. You all don't remember, ma? Doesn't mean that his time 45 years later, people don't remember, ma? So he was a big time teacher, okay? Buddha went to get two of them. Uh, and to cut a long story short, he went, he learned under them, he mastered their skill all within just a very short time. No mention how short, but we know it has to be a very short time. He, they were so impressed with him, one of them offered him joint leadership of the center. The second one said, hey, you take over lah. <laughs> Succession planning on the spot. Buddha said, no. He, no, he actually gave them a chance. He said, is there anything else you can teach me? Then they all looked at him and went, no, that's just it. Highest level of meditation, that was it. Then he said, uh, okay, thank you very much. And then he went off. He wasn't very impressed. So, left unimpressed. Must shortcut the thing, huh? Then he did the next thing. Their method, which was very common in those days, was self-torture. In fact, this method is still being used today. People going around naked, people going around feeding mosquitoes and insects and everything. Uh, some don't eat, some eat very little. No, no, they do eat, they eat very little. And the Buddha did exactly that. Every single, you know, this self-torture, right? There are so many things you can do to your form, okay? I mean, there's just so many things you can do to your form. He tried them all. There's a sutta where he actually described everything that he did to his form. And he almost killed himself. He, he himself said, I was so good, I almost killed myself. Of course, he didn't quite say it like that. But the point is, he knew he almost died. Okay? And I believe you can, you know, whatever they say it, it would appear that he started hallucinating because he was starting to see things, all kinds of things, okay? Luckily, he had the wisdom to stop what he did. Otherwise, no dhamma. So he stopped. He said to himself, cannot be. I am I'm literally at death's door and I, there's just more and more and more and more dukkha. I don't see the way out. Cannot be this method. Something is wrong here. So he reflected, and then he had a moment of insight. 
And the moment of insight was, he said, actually, I think I need, I need to have a quiet, objective, sharp, focused mind. I need that mind. And that was how it was linked to the recollection of a younger day practice where he experienced jhana. That, that was what he understood, okay? The main thing here is he realized that actually what he needs is a mind that doesn't talk, a mind that is quiet, that's very still, that is able to reflect objectively on how it works. Can you just imagine this guy is just recovering, just recovering from starvation, near-death starvation, just in case you don't get it, I write it there. Near-death starvation, and got the, the lucidity of the mind to say, I need a mind, a sharp, quiet, objective, focused mind. Okay? So, the moment his body was ready, he went on a 12-hour straight marathon. Meditation marathon, sorry, not a running marathon. <laughs> a meditation marathon that lasted 12 hours. And in all that 12 hours, three types of knowledge surfaced in his mind. Now, I know you, many of you would have read books. I'm not presumptuous. I assume all of you have read books. Buddha, and you would have said, oh, he, these are the three types of knowledge that he, he, he experienced. I want you to flip that around and think a little deeper about what those knowledge means. Okay? What, do, what those types of knowledge means. The first one. The first one, it is said that he saw, he saw his own past lives in detail. So he knew his name, his caste, meaning his family, what kind, down to the kind of food he ate, the pain he experienced in lives, down to that level of resolution. What it means is, you just think, if you see past lives, the average person, the average person, I'm not saying you are, uh, I just say average person. Maybe you're not average, eh? Huh? The average person, when they see past life, will go like this. Oh, that was me. That was him. And her, and them. And the, oh, that's me. I exist. Yes? Most average people would be doing it that way. That's me, that's me, that's me. And then you just go back. Oh, I've lived through so many. There is a soul. <laughs> The odds are, this is what you're going to say. Buddha, when he saw these lives, concluded thus. Alamak. <laughs> okay, he didn't use the word alamak, but the idea is there. Okay, Alamak, death is not the end. Death is the beginning of the next life. How? Dukkha, <laughs> one life, not enough. You see, can you see that? He was looking for a way out of Dukkha. Up until that point, he didn't know there were lives. So now he knows there were lives and he said, hey, Dukkha, one life not enough. There are lives. We are continuing. Die. Okay, that's the idea. Rebirth means 
death is not the end. So while the rest of us would celebrate life, because I don't die, I don't die, I'm very happy about it, right? Buddha just went into the, oh, oh, there are many lives to come. If I don't fix this in this life, I'm condemned to start this again. So you see the wisdom of the man, it's just so different from the rest of us. Right? We will happily celebrate life. Yes, I was an Egyptian princess. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and what does he do? Alama. <laughs> I got a problem. This thing doesn't end. Okay. Okay. Next. The second, okay, four hours are six to ten. Uh, six, seven, eight, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yes. Six to ten was the first batch. <laughs> six to ten was when he saw his past lives. 10 to 2, he saw what I call karmic drivers. But the way it was said in, in the sutta was that he saw how people were reborn according to their action. Meaning to say karmic drivers. What drives rebirths? What shapes rebirths? Now, a lot of us, when we see rebirths, when we see rebirths, and this is what the Buddha himself said, huh? it's exactly what the Buddha said. His point in one of the suttas, his point was, when you see rebirths, it is very easy for you to conclude wrongly. If you were to see that a bad person, obviously bad, he did all kinds of bad things. But you would see his next birth, he had a good birth, you may conclude, no such thing as karma. You see, do bad, get good birth. Or, uh, yes, quite the jialat. It could be the other way around. It may well be the other way around. You see this guy who is doing bad things, he die, he gets a rebirth, but he got rebirth. Terrible, terrible rebirth. And you conclude, karma is everything. Oh, subjalat. Because then you will say there's no way out. You see what I'm saying? In one way, you say there's no such thing as karma. In the other way, you say karma is everything. But it is not so simple. The Buddha kept saying, karmic forces are not so simple to understand and only the Buddha would truly understand the mathematical equation. He didn't use the word mathematical. But the point is, it is a complex equation that only the Buddha can understand so the rest of you don't try. I add in the paraphrase part. The point is, he saw the karmic forces driving rebirth. Now he understood. This is a very important knowledge. Once you understand this, it was possible for him to then figure out how to chop it, you see. If he did see this, how does he know how to chop it? Where is that chopping? So this knowledge made it possible for him to realize the third one. Okay? And the third one is, how do you turn off? Turn off the addiction of rebirth. That one energy that keeps you going, life after life after life, how do you switch that off? And the Buddha discovered it at 2 to 6 a.m. Okay? With the destruction of the canker. Cankers, 
what does cankers mean? Cankers are the stain that holds your mind down and forced rebirth again and again. They are the stain that keeps you going life after life. He figured out how to clean those away. Stop those, okay? The result of that trimming away, the result of that is the taste of Nibbana, okay? This happened on the night. It is believed that this happened on the full moon night of Weishak and at a place called Uruwela, okay? It's a little village near Uruwela. Why is it called Bodhigaya? It's actually Gaya, near Uruwela. Uruwela is a town. It's a border garrison town, okay? It's called Bodhigaya only after we acknowledge that the Buddha was enlightened there. So Gaya, the humble Gaya, became Bodhigaya, okay? It's near a river. River is important. River was where they drew water and do a lot of other things. And for the next 45 years of his life, the Buddha devoted it to teaching Dhamma. 45 years. Those 45 years were mainly documented in the Pali Canon, in various canons. So quite um, safe to conclude, quite reasonable to conclude that he was a teacher, a very successful teacher, and taught Dhamma. Okay? He passed away in a little obscure, remote place called Kusinara. Why do I put 80, 81? It's always said Buddha passed away when he was 80. And I always say, if he passed away on his birthday, he has to be 81. <laughs> so I acknowledge the conventional truth and offer you an alternative. <laughs> okay. Now, what is the life of this man that we call the Buddha? About a third of that life, he spent in a lay life. Which means to say, Buddha knew what it was like to live like us. He was not living... Yes, he was a very rich man and he was leading a very pampered life. But he would understand the pain of being forced into life's responsibilities, having to earn a living, looking after your wife, quarrelling with your wife, having children, one worrying about their education and so on and so forth. Okay? So he would, he would understand the burden of a lay life. Which is why, even after he was Buddha, he gave many very good lectures, talks, discourses that were relevant to lay life. He didn't talk out of vacuum, you know. Like, oh, let's pontificate on something I never know. He knew what it was like and he offered clever, practical solution. And the solutions that he offered for lay living were so useful, I think they're still quite relevant today. In fact, they're very relevant today. Okay? But about half of his life, you see, he lived to 80. 45 years of his life, he was a Dhamma teacher, practitioner Dhamma teacher, okay? That was the sum of what he was. Then the question is, what was he? We know who was he. 
Now let's talk about what was he. How many of you know how to chant Iti Piso Bhagawara Hansama Sambudok without looking at your notes? Okay, I need you to recall the words as I pull out the slides, okay? First and foremost, the word Buddha. It was a title, we call him Buddha. In his time, uh, you'll be shocked. In his time, he wasn't called Buddha. The Blessed One? The Thakata? Gautama was by other people. People who were not of his school will call him ascetic Gautama. But people of his school, his disciple, they don't call him Buddha. They call him Tathagata, they call him Bante. Bante, teacher, okay? They, and they never call him by name, which is the reason why he actually has no name. In the Pali canon, in the canon, we can't find his name. The name Siddhartha that you know came from commentaries. It didn't come from the canon. Then people ask, why? Uh? Why canon never mentioned his name? I asked you. You go around calling the, the person that you most respect, that is dearest to you, he's such a powerful... You know, he, you're so respectful of him, you call him by name. Uh. No, uh, you call him by director, you know. You, you know what I mean? You, you call him boss. You call, you call him bante. But you don't go around calling him something, right? Ananda, Ananda. No, you don't do that. So you don't call Siddhartha, you don't call him by name. So we don't know his real name. We think it's okay to call him Siddhartha. So just keep up. Uh, Am I? After all, you always call him Buddha, what, right? <laughs> okay, literally, the word Buddha means he who knows. Who knows? Knows what? Meaning the enlightened one. Okay, now let's look at the Itipiso Bhagawa Arahan Samma Sambuddha, right? This means that he was. Enlightened, that he was different, that he was special. That's the first one, that he was different, he was special. So his people, his disciples, went around saying that he was enlightened, that he is, he was uh, someone who knew truth. That was how it came about, that he knew the truth. He understand the worlds. He can see beyond the obvious, and so on and so forth. There has to be all these things. The next one says, Vijja Charana Sampano, right? Vijja is knowledge, Charana is conduct. So essentially, Buddha, in his time, was known to be a good man. Good, noble, upright. He, and this is important, his conduct was immaculate. This is important. If you are a spiritual teacher, if you are a spiritual teacher, and your conduct leaves much to be desired, how is people supposed to follow you? Follow my talk, don't follow my walk. <laughs> it's a bit of a problem, right? So, this, that he was a good man, minimal. This is minimal. This is very minimal. Uh. That you are a good man uh, puts it at just level one, okay? If you don't even have this one, finish. But if you have this one, not enough. Fair? 
<laughs> okay, next, next one. Bicha chao sampano. Sugato. Sugato lo kawitu. What does it mean by um, sugato? Well gone. Lo kawitu knower of the world. What it means is someone who knows the practice, understand what has to be done, and do it. And do it well. Understand what was the practice about, how to realize, because you are enlightened, right? How to be enlightened. And he knew how to do it right. So, if you just take these three, I'm not even going to the last two, just take these three, what does it tell you? What does it tell you? Uh, hello? What does it tell you guys? Just looking at these three. He must be quite a famous guy. He's a good man. And he knows what he's saying. He's a good practitioner. So minimally, minimally, you will say he's a decent man. Minimally. Okay? And this is important because subsequently, his enemies tried to attack his reputation. He stood by his reputation. Reputation is everything, you know. In the old days, you don't have internet. Cannot publicize you. Facebook, like, 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 like. By one million, everybody knows you already. <laughs> In the old days, you can't have that. No liking over the place. In the old days, it's spread by word of mouth. Whether or not, and he wasn't the only teacher. You think, today, you know Buddha. He's the only one left. His teaching is the only one left from a long time ago. But in the old days, there were many, many, many teachers. It's like a dime a dozen, you know. There were a lot of them. So he has to be able to stand out. If you were living 2,500 years ago, this is what will happen if you're looking for a teacher. You come out of your house, you look across the road, it's Ion. Okay? And it's Ion at every level. There are teachers teaching Dhamma. Dharma, Dhamma, whatever you call it. Different levels. And you can go shopping. Today, you go to that one. Not so good. Go to the next one. Not so good. Go to the next one. You see what I'm saying? They're all there. Not congregated like that, but they're all over the place. There are many of them. So Buddha had to have a good reputation to be able to draw students. Okay? And... The next one says, he was a very good teacher. Um, I forgot my own chanting. Sugato loka we do. Anut taro purisa dhamma sarati. Okay. Saturday, okay, Saturday. Two parts there. Um, that he could teach anyone or anything that wish to learn. Anyone or anything. But teach them to do what? The point is not the teaching. It's teaching them to do what? Tame the mind. You understand? So that, that stanza, it's not for you to just jan, 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 eh? It's for you to reflect on the significance of the meaning of those words. He was a great teacher who taught how to tame the mind. 
If you follow him properly, your mind will be tame. Because it works. That's what it says. Okay? And the last one, a sage that knew what he was teaching came from the word loka vidu, knower of the world. Why is that? What is this world that he's talking about which we will cover in lecture two onwards? The world is the world of your mind, your mental world. Because as far as you are concerned, that's the world. You mean you what? Got many worlds in here. Then you're schizophrenic. You see what I'm saying? You have but one world. That is the world in which you understand the world. <laughs> oh, that was good. <laughs> but the point is, you have one world. It's here. He knows the nature of the mind. Knower of the world is knower of the mind. Okay? What was the Buddha? You know, if it, if it were about him only, then the story would have ended. But it's never about the story. I mean, sorry, it's not just about him. It's about the Dhamma. The reason why we honour the Buddha today the reason why we remember him, that he mattered, matters. The reason for that is because the teaching that he left behind continues to be effective in helping us. Because it continues to be effective in helping us do what? resolve the pain in our mind. Because it continues to help us resolve the pain in our mind that it works, then we remember Him. Because every time you feel that relief, who do you say thank you to? Buddha. That's the reason why all those, those of you who have truly understood his Dhamma, truly understood what he's, he taught, and make it a part of your life, for those of you, your gratitude towards him, to him, it's immeasurable. Okay? So what did he teach? He taught people how to overcome the negativities in their minds so that they can experience happiness, unconditioned bliss, and unconditioned joy. Let me explain this. Negativities, big word, so many syllables, ayo. What it means is our instincts, our negative instincts, our craving, our anger, our jealousy, our fear, our tendency to resent when things don't go our way, to covet someone else's things, to covet things that we don't have, and so on and so forth. 
So many negativities, so many adjectives. Those of you who are so have such a powerful command of English would be able to sit here and rattle off until tonight. The list of things that can be negative, negative emotions, negative instincts, negative this and other in the mind. If we can purge those instincts, then we will be happy. Fair? No. Fair. <laughs> That's the trick question. The answer is yes. Okay. And his mission, his mission for 45 years was essentially to teach the methodology, a methodology of helping individuals overcome their negative instincts. Once that's done, they are happy, for sure. Okay. So now, I want you to note the word. I use three words here: the method, the way, the path. Path and way are very similar. It's a method and a path. Okay. What's the significance of these two? They're not the same word. A method implies a system of training package of training. There are steps. There is a framework. It is not one thing. It's a series of things to do. But Buddha himself consistently calls it a path, a way. Magga, the word magga means path, implying that it is a journey. Progress it's a process, a process whereby the individual starts to change gradually. This is a journey of self-discovery or a journey of understanding the mind. It takes time, it takes effort. It will not happen overnight. For those of you who think that you can enter the stream like this overnight, Think again. Sometimes it takes a bit more than just overnight. Maybe two nights. <laughs> okay, but it takes more than that. And the Buddha himself puts it as happiness in this life and next. What does it mean by in this life and next? The significance of the word is in this life. In this life, if you get the understanding correct, and if you got the practice nailed, you should be happy. Therefore, if you are not happy, you did not nail it. Fair? <laughs> That's the answer. And it was a trick question. Because it's supposed to be like that. Okay? If, I repeat, huh? Actually, I can't repeat it. It's not easy to repeat. The point is, the point is, if you find that you are not happy, then you cannot say that I'm a student of the Buddha. But you didn't get his method right. For all you know, you didn't even practice his method. I don't know what method you practice, but not his method. So it didn't work. Then you may rather smugly or snickly ask me, say something like, so his method works. Works. Of course it works. 
a whole bunch of, of practitioners will tell you it works. Then you say it didn't work for me, leh. The method, you know, you get the method right. That's the point. So your measurement for yourself or whether you're on the right track of the Buddha's path is whether you are happier. Now, after you have started, or are you more stressed? <laughs> Some people get more stressed. Eh? I need to know the Dhamma. I have to know the Dhamma. I don't know the Dhamma. I'm very stressed. Dhamma stress. Also have. Also have. So salah. I always salah, okay? Okay, now the next question. So the teaching is, I repeat, uh, it's a methodology, it's a method, it's a system of training as well as a process. It takes time, it is gradual, but it will happen for you if you get it right. Subsequent lectures, this, today is the only day that we're going to talk about the Buddha. Next week onwards, there'll be many, many lectures on the method. You have a method coming out of your years by the end of the day, okay? Okay. Next question is, who did he teach? To whom did he teach, okay? Anyone who wanted to... Anyone who wanted to see Dhamma? In the early days when he started, he threw in one more criteria and could see Dhamma. But subsequently, this criteria was not important. If you are very sincere and you seek the path and you want to know where this path leads to, you come to him, he will teach you. That's all he asks, that you are sincere. That you seek the path, you want to see Dhamma. Seek the path is to see Dhamma. Don't seek the path, go don't know where. Okay? Seek the path is to see Dhamma. No discrimination. This is a significant point. Today, we don't realize it. But in the time of the Buddha, this is a big thing. You know the people that he taught? The youngest was seven. He didn't put an age limit, but they just happened to be all seven. I suspect they didn't count the birthdays properly. Lah. So anyone that can't start to talk well enough, seven. So all the young little, little arahans, uh, seven, only seven years old. <laughs> Again, I don't think they counted the birthday and made it an official 80. But there was a very old man. He was so old, nobody wanted him. Seriously, nobody wanted, wanted to admit him into the order. They all said, <laughs> Very old. Eh. And then the Buddha, the Buddha actually said, Any of you remembered him being kind to you just once? Return the favor and admit him. So guess who did it? Never read my book, y'all. See, proof. Proof. Sariputta. Sariputta admitted him. Well done. After I give you chocolate. Okay, you get chocolate also. No fight over chocolates. <laughs> okay, the second lot of people that he taught Dhamma to was women. And this is very big because in ancient India, woman was at the bottom of the social totem pole. You are lower than the sacred cow. So it's men, okay, then cow, then you. <laughs> 
you're very low. The assumption in that society, the assumption in the ancient society is women can't understand Dharma. Yeah, language, Vedic language. Dharma. Women should not participate in religious activities because when they do, very sway. Unfortunately, seriously, it's considered inauspicious for women to be involved. And therefore, they wanted son because your daughter, you can't do a thing, right? You can only produce son, so do your work, you know? That's how the, that's how the ancient Indian of the day, of the Buddhist day, that's how they thought. So they wanted the boys because only the boys were able to do things for the family, for the religious rights. Buddha not only taught women, Buddha opened the Sangha to women. It would have been the controversy of the century. If they had a century, that would have counted as the century's controversy. Because can you just imagine all the men going, is he crazy? All these women, can you imagine? They're all over the place. Ah, it would have been like that, okay? Social outcasts, um, meaning the lower caste people. People who have breached caste rules, they are mixed. Nobody wants to have anything to do with them, but to dealt with them. Servants and slaves, you know, there were many uh, disciples who were actually palace servants. And then they had a hand, interestingly, these palace servants had a hand in influencing their masters. After all, who do you confide? You've got no good friends, Leh. When you are a palace lady, you don't come out and mingle with the crowd, right? The person that you speak to would be your, your mate. So the mates were able to influence their mistresses, okay? Ah, okay, this, this is not speed slow. This is intellectually slow. I didn't want to say other words. There were, there were people... No, you think about it, huh? You ask yourself this. Uh, you laugh. You ask yourself this. In your, say you are your teacher, okay? Let's just say, let's pretend you are a Dhamma teacher. Yeah, we are pretend. Eh? And then your class, you say, well, this one cannot, like, cannot make it. Right? <laughs> you cannot understand. I say 10 times, you doesn't understand. What's your instinct? Not to teach. Waste time, waste time, don't want to teach, right? Buddha didn't do that. One of his disciples, we all know the famous case, Chulapantaka. The very famous case where he was so slow, it took him one month, he couldn't memorize one stanza. Four lines, he couldn't do it. One month. So the brother, his elder brother got fed up, told him, go home. You can't do anything. You can't even learn one stanza. Go home, go home. The poor guy went to the Buddha, very disappointed. He was actually going to the Buddha to say his goodbye. Sorry, Bobs. I have to go. My brother said, I no use here. To ask me to go back late life, and then at least I can serve the Sangha. The Buddha said, no, 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 no. So give him a piece of white cloth, okay, and asked him to go and face the sun. Morning sun, ah. It's okay, vitamin D. Face the morning sun. Take it and wipe the hair, the, 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 the sweat, the sweat of the brow, and then rub this way and go, that be gone. Okay, so he did that. He just wrap, wrap. When he kept doing that, and he kept staring with that white cloth, the white cloth became stained. And as he kept staring at that stain, 
he realized anicchata, impermanence. And with that, he realized the Dhamma. So it was a eureka moment thanks to a piece of white cloth. So don't look down on the white cloth, okay? <laughs> the moral of the story, buy white cloth. <laughs> that would have been the wrong story to go off with. Moral of the story is don't look down on people who seem slower because Dhamma is not about how smart you are. It's how intuitive, intuitive-wise you are, okay? And the most celebrated of all, a serial killer. The guy is a serial killer for sure. No matter what story you tell, to try and justify this man, he was a serial killer. If you had read the text, the Angulimala text, you will know that when he saw the Buddha, whom he was going to kill, in fact, he was going to make minced meat out of Buddha, and he was very proud of himself, you know, he was here, <laughs> he said. You look at the words, that's exactly what he said. This is fake. He's mine. No, you chased after him. You wanted to kill the Buddha. Now, of course, I mean, how seriously, how you kill him, right? So he didn't, and then the rest is history. He was converted, became an arahan later. But, but what you don't realize is when this man joined the order, it caused a ruckus. You don't realize it. You all read that story very happy that oh, he converted a serial killer. Well done. The fact is he created ruckus. The Buddha created ruckus. The king mobilized his forces to go and capture this killer. The plan is to give him a grand standoff, meaning a public execution of the most gory type. But what did the Buddha do? Admit him into the Sangha. Then after which, the king now has to bow to the serial killer. It's really bosong, you know. So it is not, it is... Today, when you look at the words, the text, you don't realize the emotion underlying the text because they are so clinical. The words are so clinical. Some of you may even say the words are so boring. I read once, I don't read again. But the reality is, if you start to examine those words very carefully, you realize that there is a deeper story there. So this man, people hated him. Seriously, he killed you and he take your thumb. That was his, his, his big time. Oh, by the way, I didn't mention his name. Oh. His name is Angulimala. He kill you, he takes your thumb. He's not nice. He has... What, does, what do serial killers do? They keep souvenirs. What did he do? He kept souvenirs. Yeah, now you know. Huh? Okay. The only people the Buddha will not teach are those who were lazy and refused to follow instructions. He told a horse trainer that for these, he will kill them. And the horse trainer died on the spot. <gasps> I thought you were supposed to kill? The horse trainer went. And he says, no, it means I won't talk to them, I won't instruct them, I wouldn't teach them. So what is the moral of the story here that we can take away with us? If we were to take an example, and we take... Buddha, as an example, it means you will teach whoever is willing and only walk away when they say, I'm not learning from you, go away. There's no point. 
Don't push. Don't go around and come here like frog and then okay, shoving it down people's neck. They don't want it. Then just walk away, okay? The method of teaching. The Buddha does not or did not launch into a talk. It wasn't his style. His style was to assess whether people were receptive. Were receptive. Now, our problem for many of us is we don't care whether you're receptive. You come, you come. Then I will jam it down your throat. <laughs> also, that's what a lot of us do, you know. No, he didn't. He will get a sense a sense of whether they were ready and if they were not ready and he also packed some of them they are ready but not ready for the more cheap stuff okay the more difficult ones the solid hardcore dhamma so he okay siam doesn't go into those he will go into the simpler ones and this is the way he did it it's called gradual teaching gradual learning he'll talk about dana generosity then he will talk about sila, morality. Then he will talk about the heavens, the way to heavens. Why like this? You see, for many of us, if we were to tell you about giving, giving is a good thing. Giving opens your heart. Giving makes your mind light, and so on and so forth. You listen to that, there is a good, decent chance that if you're a good, decent person, you will hear you will hear it and your heart indeed would get light. So he's preparing your mind to listen to his Dhamma. He gets you happy because there's a very good chance that you just gave. Ancient India, they love to give to the practitioners. They do believe that they will get some returns. So in ancient India, they do enjoy giving. Dana is a popular subject. The second one, Sila. It is an important subject. Sila, just remember this. We look at morality and we give it a passing glance. Yes? How many of you take the five precepts? Seriously. <laughs> Reciting it before the Buddha and then after that wonder whether you should smack the mosquito. Huh? And, and then, then you go into this philosoph de philosophical debate why you are trying to tame dengue. <laughs> so your precepts are what's written and then you get into all kinds of angst about those. They are the words. For you, they are words. They are not something that sinks in and becomes a way of life. They are, so for many of us, some of you are not like that, of course. Some of you are really good people, you know. So we don't talk about you. We talk about the others who are not who are still struggling with all these morality parameters, okay? Now, for these people who are struggling with the morality thing, it is important for them to realize that morality is important because their karma, their vipaka, could be quite messy if they don't observe morality. So Buddha was trying to help them. Hence, the third one, he talks about heavens, the way to heavens. How do you become such a good person that your next rebirth is assured? He's gradually taking you to 
Number four, he's telling you the danger of indulging. And finally, the joy of, of, of moderation. That is the practice already. So without even saying, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to talk about the four noble truths and the eightfold paths. Without even saying that, without even saying that, he's going to take you to the Dhamma. All the way to Dhamma. That's the brilliance of the man. He doesn't say a word. No four noble truths, eightfold paths. That's like, not, no need to say. He just went into, just remember this, Dana is simple. Silla is obvious. Then the way to heaven is to give people joy. Inspiring. The way to hell is not inspiring. It's very scary. So that's why he talks about the way to heaven, not to hell. way to hell is just not the sort of things you talk about, you know? And then you talk about, as I said, the danger of overindulging and moderation. That's Dhamma. That's pure Dhamma. So, so in one simple process, he takes you through understanding the teachings. And if you happen to run into him, when your mind is nice, soft and open, that's when you enter the stream law. A lot of the people who entered the stream and understood the Dhamma, happened. this is where it happened. Then you say, how, how did it happen? Because the Dhamma is there. The danger of overindulging and the importance of moderation. That's Dhamma. That's pure Dhamma. Okay? And at that point, if you understand what happens to your mind, your mind stops clinging so tightly. It starts to loosen. Meaning, as part of entering this stream, you have to learn to let go. Okay? And, okay, so first and foremost, sensitive to the moods. He understands when they're ready, he whack. If they're not ready, he sayang. I mean it, huh? People who come to him hungry, eat first. Yeah, he offered them food. Which created a bit of a ruckus, by the way, amongst the monk. Because we are monk, leh. The monk offered layman food, huh? So it created, actually, you know that story about how this guy is in the Dhammapada. So you know the story of this guy who went to the Buddha, he spent the whole day looking for his cow, and then, then he was very tired, he's very hungry, and then the Buddha looked, oh, cannot, cannot, you better eat first. Huh? That part, that created a bit of a ruckus with the monks, because Buddha giving him food? A bit, a bit like lopsided, you know? Okay, so that was what happened. But nonetheless, this is what he would do, okay? People who went to him crying, there were many people, many people who went to him sobbing. Mostly women. So, <laughs> because they lost their kids. You go read Terigatta, uh, Terigatta, Terigatta, the, the, the songs of the nuns. And so many of them, child mortality must have been very high. Minimally, you can conclude so. And it's reasonable, right? You know, a lot of them are wailing and so and so forth, and then he would calm them down, calm them down, tell them some stories, and then they, they calm down. They calm down enough for him to be able to get through to them. Okay? <clears throat> ah, okay, no need. Uh, actually, I already explained this, right? Gradual teaching, okay? 
Now, this one is interesting. You see, the people who went to the Buddha, they fall into two broad categories. There were the masses, and there were the intelligentsia, the, the thinking people of society. You know, those philosophers, those wanderers of other sects, they were the thinking people, the educated ones. And they would go to him with all kinds of questions. And he had four methods of dealing with questions. Okay? Sometimes he would answer categorically, meaning to say, yes, no, and that's it. Yes, it is like that. No, it is not like that. Sometimes he would even explain, no, there are four points. And then he goes into four points, all very categorical. Sometimes... Being categorical doesn't complete the answer. He gives them detail. Lots of details. If you want to go for the detailed ones, go look at Majimanikaya. Majimanikaya, Diganikayas, this is where lots of details with regards to a simple question. Sometimes he answers with a question, meaning to say, it's not like this, huh? so what do you think, Buddha? Yeah, what do you think? <laughs> Not like that, like that really no standard, you know? <laughs> that may be the way we do it, but not the way he do it, okay? The way he did it would be, the way he did it would be, you ask him a question, he knew that there is a problem with the question, and what he would do, what he would do is to then pose this question to the person. Tell me, when you say this, what exactly do you mean? So he get that person to define, to elaborate on his question. So he seek clarification as to what is it exactly you want to know. Okay? So it's not, what you think, what you think. Okay? The last one, he doesn't reply. And this is the celebrated one. This is the one where everybody says, Buddha doesn't reply. There's a reason why he doesn't reply. Okay, What are these questions that he will not reply to? There are 10 of them, broadly 10 of them. It has to do with speculating about the nature of the world, the physical world, the, meta the actual physical world. So is the world infinite or is the world uh, permanent? What's the difference? Infinite is space. Does it go on forever? Permanent or not, it's time. Time. Does it exist forever? Not the same. Okay? So there's a whole series of infinite, not infinite, neither infinite, not infinite, all kinds of all these things. Then there is another set that deals with the nature of the Buddha's existence after death. People just fixated about what happens to him when he, when he goes. And he won't answer that either. Now, you may ask, why, uh, why wouldn't the Buddha, the, the Buddha answer? Quite simple, what? Yes, I exist. No, I don't exist. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> why wouldn't he say something? The reason he wouldn't reply, this one, you can't find a text. This is me speculating. I'm speculating on an answer here, okay? I'm speculating on an answer here, and my answer is this. I think the reason why he will not reply is because of the start point. 
Your starting point in asking a question, yes or no, does the Buddha exist after he dies? What is your starting point? There is something called an essence, an essence called Buddha. You already start on the wrong point. You start on the wrong point, what's he supposed to say? Excuse me, excuse me, let me explain something. Your starting point a bit off. It is too complex, it is unnecessary, it's irrelevant to the practice. Don't need. When you realize and become an arahan yourself, you got your answer. If you haven't realized and you're not an arahan, you don't deserve the answer. You see what I'm saying? So no point. Okay. Last bit. Last bit. You may not know this or you may assume this, that Buddha must have been a very powerful speaker. You may assume it, right? Uh, we believe so, and the reason why we, we think he was so is because of what other people say about him. His own disciples are going to say he's the best speaker in the world, man. Oh, it's best. His own, his own disciples will say that. But it is members of other sects, people from other sects. Why do you want to debate with him? If he were useless as a speaker, if you were the most, if you were the most ce celebrated speaker of your all-time favorite, your national debating champion, are you really going seriously to go and debate with someone who is really nobody? He can't speak for nuts. He stammers through his sentences. But I must go debate him, you you won't, right? If you were the national debater champion and all, you are going to pick the best man and fight him. Ah. Because when you win, you not only champion national, you champion international. You, you see what I'm saying? And these guys will go after the Buddha. The fact that they went after him, wanting to debate with him, must mean that he got some standard. Okay? Fair. It's... It's um, circumstantial evidence, but it's fair. It's a fair point. So he must have been really, really quite impressive. Secondly, the kind of people he was, he was able to draw, we will talk about a, a bit more about that later. But given the kind of people he was able to draw, he cannot have been a nobody. If you were a nobody, could you possibly draw you know, the, the kings of the land? Not possible. The kings of the name wouldn't have smelled you. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Buddha, famous for using visual aid. That's why it's up there, visual aid. <laughs> I learned from the Buddha, you know. <laughs> he, he will use visual aid, literally. He will, you know, when he's talking to his disciples and he will say things like, uh, compared to all the leaves here, you pull out some leaves. He said, how much leaves are there here compared to all these leaves? And then the disciple dutifully, uh, your, your hand is obviously just a handful and the forest a lot more. And then you say, uh, the kind of things that I'm teaching you is comparable to this amount. The sort of things that I know is this amount. So I'm only giving you enough for you to realize Nibbana. That would have been an impact. So we are going to look for leaves, look for trees. <laughs> Not just that. Huh? There were so many people in his time when they, in their own practice, okay, in their own practice, when they ran into trouble, 
Buddha would give them visual aid. You remember the guy with the cloth, that white cloth? Well, there was another one with flower. This man, again, he was very disillusioned. He, he, he was sure he couldn't, he couldn't see Dhamma. He was sure. So because he felt so disillusioned, he felt so dis disappointed with himself, he went to tell the Buddha he had to go. Why was that? Originally, he was given the usual object for meditation. It was the usual object for meditation? A corpse. They each have their own corpse. <laughs> okay, maybe they don't have a personal corpse, but their job is to go look at decaying bodies. So this poor man, day after day, he went to look at decaying bodies and then he got really upset because and his mind couldn't settle. So eventually he gave up. He told the Buddha he had to go home. He, he couldn't do it. Buddha said, uh, hmm? give him a rose. Flower, la, flower. Lotus, lotus. It was a lotus, not rose. <laughs> Buddha gave him a lotus, a bit more, a bit more spiritual. Right? He gave him a lotus and told him, just look at it. Don't even do anything, just look at it. So he went, he sat there, he stared, and Buddha kind of speed up the process of decay. It's still decay, but it was the decay of something beautiful. He got it. As he was looking, the mind settled, it became calmer. He could look at the lotus, and he realized change, impermanence. At the end of it, death. So he realized. Now, there were many, many monks who were told to go to the graveyard and look at corpse. There was a whole bunch of monks who went to visit the Buddha, thinking they had realized, you see, they also can be deluded, you know. They were sure they were realized. They went, oh, let's go report to Buddha, Arahan. Buddha said, don't let them come near me, just ask them to go to the cemetery. That's what, seriously, he told Ananda, don't let them come near me, go ask them to go to the cemetery. So they all dutifully troped to the cemetery, got a shock of their life. Got a shot of their eye. Because when they look at the corpse, they are not neutral. There was aversion. There was lust. Okay. <laughs> there were feelings. Okay. And they were shocked that they were not realized. And as they were looking at that, the Buddha told them, This is the consequence of life. Just look at it decaying right before your very eyes. And then they realized. So there were all these examples, lots and lots of examples of using visual aid. Similes, very powerful. Why? Because Dhamma is very obscure. It's very sublime. How to explain Dhamma? Not easy. It's very difficult. So in order to explain certain concepts, the Buddha will use either similes or analogies from people's life. If, if, if the monks or the practitioners of the day were bakers or hunters, he would literally use hunting analogies for them. Something they are familiar with so that the points which are obscure come across, come alive for them. It's easier for them to understand. So you will notice, you will notice if you had studied the suttas, that there were many, many farming analogies. Why farming? Ancient India was a farming community. Lots and lots of farmers. And, you know, they would understand how you till the field, how you marshal the 
What's that? Buffaloes, right? Buffaloes along. The buffaloes along and so on and so forth. Okay, so that was him being a very effective speaker. We know that he was very successful. Evidence. We know that the number of monks grew into the thousands. We know that. How do we know that? You, you will find that, that in the suttas, the king himself, in Rajagaha, saying that in Rajagaha there were, and it's, a, it's not a round number, it's one of those numbers like 1,263. It's, it's one of those numbers which is not a round number. The round number will be 500. If they say 500, you know it's a lot, but nobody counted. <laughs> But here the king said there were like 2,000 something or other. So because it's not a round number, there is a very high chance that that's a real or somewhat approximating a real number. There were at least 2,000 monks living in Rajagaha. It's not funny. Okay? And that is only Rajagaha. Rajagaha is a capital of a very prominent uh, kingdom. And we know they spread across several places. It started, his teaching started in this little place, Uruwela and Isipatana, Benares. That was, that was where it started. And then it kind of went into Rajagaha and then eventually went to Kosala, uh, Kosala Sawati, and then it kind of spread all over the place. North East India. That was the the space that he was operating in. The people who were his biggest patrons were literally the political and business elite of society. Why is this important? If it were not for money and power, you think the faith can spread this far? Through the centuries, there is no way a faith can spread a teaching can spread without the backing of the elite of society. And this is the point I want to make. The young, the best and the brightest were drawn towards the Buddha. Why? Because in his time, his teaching was considered very, very ahead of time. They never heard of it before. They've never heard of it before. They found that it helped to solve their immediate mental problems, issues. You see, like it or not, the young, best and brightest are the ones with problems. They're the ones with angsting away. Because the mind works so fast, right? You remember when you were young and among the best and brightest, you were restless also, ma? No? No, no, you were never bright, brightest or best brightest. <laughs> you see, this is a problem. Huh? <laughs> when you were young and you were intelligent, I mean, you are intelligent, clearly there was a period of restlessness. There was a period you went in search and you came this way, so you found this teaching. In the time of the Buddha, it was the same. There were all kinds of people having all kinds of problems, checking out all kinds of teachers and trying to understand all kinds of doctrines. Normal. But Buddha was able to bring the best. And they were the best. Because if you look at the Arahans, right? 
the, the, the names of the Arahans, they were amongst the richest in society of the time. Okay? But there were tough times, very difficult times. He had, it's a zero-sum game. Whatever that Buddha gained is a loss for some other school or sect or teacher. So he got into all kinds of trouble. His life reads like a Korean drama. Episode 33, frame for this, you know? Episode 45, slandered for that. Episode 79, targeted for assassination and so on and so forth. So all kinds of things. His sangha, his poor sangha was split, uh, almost, almost torn apart in the ninth, uh, ninth year. In the ninth year. By the 40, sorry, 60 years old, 35 years, 35, 62, eight years before the end, uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 36, uh, five, sorry, 36, 36 years of the dispensation, it almost tore apart. It split completely. Devadatta came along and took out one chunk. That was not funny. You think that, oh, Buddha was there. The point is Buddha was there. And it split. You see what I'm saying? You say, Buddha was there, no problem. Buddha was there, it split. Did you see how bad it went? And for the people of the day, it was scary. Because not, they will be saying, Buddha's still here and it split. And Buddha's so old, not going to be here forever. Problem. So there's a lot of fear in the time. For sure, there were a lot of fear. And, and they were not, and they were really evil. Huh? They killed uh, Moggallana. Why did they kill Mahamoggallana? Because Mahamoggallana was the psychic man. It's foremost of those with psychic powers. And you will say, uh, so? So he got a lot of disciples. People love a good psychic show, you know? So if you want to practice... There's a good chance that there will be many who will be interested in him, learning from him. He was a powerful draw. Okay. Now, end, end of life. By the end of life, he had clearly, he had clearly had a very successful run. How do we know that? Because people fought for his relics. If he hasn't had a, if he were not so prominent a teacher in his time, why would they give him royal treatment? The manner in which his body was treated was reserved for royalty. Today, you read and get the impression that Buddha asked for royal treatment, right? Because Buddha say, you know, you're supposed to wrap it in don't know how many layers of white cloth and. Cotton, cotton, fresh cotton, okay? Newly imported from Benares type. Fresh cotton, ripe it, do this, do that, do that. You will think that he asked for it. But if he were, two things. One, he actually did ask, which I don't believe, but assuming he actually did, people want to give you a nod. You're not prominent, people want to give you a nod. You want royal treatment, you have to have some standing, right? Odds are he didn't ask for it. 
The odds are he didn't ask for royal treatment and they gave it to him because his disciples, his followers numbered that many and probably very rich and powerful. So they wanted the best for their teachers. These people were deeply devoted to him, okay? The devotion is tremendous. Because if they had followed the Dhamma, they would have gained the sense of joy. You read Dhamma today and sometimes you get into this spasm of joy, right? Do it in front of the Buddha. Can you imagine the joy? So given that kind of emotions, naturally, they were falling over each other trying to demonstrate that, that love and affection and so on and so forth. Okay. Result of which is, was, there were at least eight ruling families that fought over relics. What the record showed was eight of them came, including, this interesting part, including Ajata uh, Satu, the king of the most powerful kingdom of the day was Ajata Satu, and he came fighting for a relic, a share of that relic. Uh, his own Sakyans came, the fact that there was a tribe from his own family, in fact, both sides of the family, his mummy side and his daddy side both came. Okay? Koliyas uh, and the Sakyans both came. So, that was quite nice. <laughs> uh, why was he important? Because without the Buddha, there would have been no Dhamma. Fair? No one would have been able to taught, to teach Dhamma the way he did. No one could have been able to understand the Dhamma. You see, we all know that Dhamma was, is very difficult, very difficult to see. We all know that. If you don't know that, now know it. It's very difficult to, to understand. Just to understand conceptually, uh, we are not even seeing yet. We haven't got to the state where you see Dhamma. We are at the state where we conceptually understand Dhamma. And if I were to ask you question, what is Dhamma? The odds are... Stop scratching my head. Wait, let me think, let me think, let me think. What did Narada say? <laughs> so, even to just understand it conceptually, is tough. He did it without a roadmap. I've always said this. He did it without guidance. No one helped him. He figured it out himself. We have his Dhamma as a guide and we figure until don't know where. You see how tough it is? Okay, so he figured it out on his own. Second, now that you figure it out, right? Now that you know what it is, teach. And you really will scratch your head. How do you teach some? It is like saying, it's like saying, how do you teach someone? So you teach someone who is depressed how to be happy. There you go, okay. A bit, a bit of a tall order. Someone is depressed. He's never been happy in his entire life. He's never been happy in his entire life. Teach him to be happy. Then you really scratch your head, okay? Can't even draw on some examples. 
So the second, teaching Dhamma is tough. What is third? Third is giving a DIY methodology. It's DIY, you know. I give you the methodology, you go figure it out yourself. Because he's not around anymore. So now I have an eightfold path. His DIY is actually eightfold path. Then you say Sime. Maybe eightfold path is it. Yeah. Eightfold path is it. That's the method. And that's the method that works. It runs by itself. How do we know? He said it. In the last lecture that he gave, the very last, one of the very last things he said. As long as there is the Eightfold Path. In that school, if there is an Eightfold Path, there will be Arias. As long as that school has the Eightfold Path, there will be Arias. Meaning to say the method. The method. As long as they use the method, it, in that school, it will work. They will see the Dhamma. They will realize the Dhamma. If there isn't this Eightfold Path, then there isn't realization. Okay? So, to recap, just this point alone, he realized it on his own. He has to because no one else did. No one else could. So, he realized it on his own. He came up with a method of teaching and the method can survive him. 2,500 years later, the method is still with us. That's the impressive part. Okay? If it didn't work for us, it's not his fault. I just want to make that point clear. <laughs> Don't blame the poor teacher for our own limitations. Okay? I was polite and I could have said inadequacy. <laughs> limitations is a much nicer word. Huh? Okay, so without him, there is no realization of how the mind works and thus no way out. This is not repetition. Let me explain this sentence properly. They are not the same. Realizing how the mind works doesn't mean you know how to get out. Right? I know how the mind works. So, doctor whatever, so clever. Knowing how something works doesn't make you a problem solver, in other words. But, there is no way you can solve the problem if you don't know how it works. Agree? Ah, so this is actually two parts. What you want is the way out of Dukkha. What you have to do is to understand how the mind works. Once you understand how it works, then you got a remote chance. No, 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 must be more inspiring than that. You have a great chance. <laughs> Of figuring the way out. Okay? With a bit of an exaggeration, you have a decent chance, <laughs> a reasonable chance of figuring the way out. This is important. Huh? You know how it works, you got chance to get out. You don't know how it works, forget it. Next time we meet again. Okay? It will be like that. Last point. <clears throat> At the end of the day, you still need people who figure it out. People who took the map, figure out how to read the map. The, the Dhamma is the map. Figure out how to read that map. And then, 
decide that, okay, now that I kind of figured it out, I better start helping the next person to figure out how to read the Okay, this is the latitude, this is the longitude, this is all the degree and all those things. Uh, this is North Pole. <laughs> the person, there has to be people who kind of know how it works and then try and guide the next person on, on how to read the map. That's all they can do. They can't read that map for you. If you are dyslexic, there's nothing they can do. They can only help you in terms of figuring out the clues. And if you can, you put in the effort, and this is what you have to tell yourself. They can do it, I can do it. The problem is people will just go, they can do it but not me. When you say it like this, finish. Because you put a cap on your abilities. Okay? So, Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. Buddha, the man who discovered it. Dhamma is the map. Sangha is the one who figured it out. And then now try and keep it alive. That's the essence of the Triple Gems. Now, uh, I will just conclude. You see, Buddha was a man. He was no more than a man. He was a great man. Unique in history. But over time, very grateful, very, very, the gratitude was immeasurable. All these people who were around him eventually, not around him, they were subsequent disciples, they began to build a kind of a personality cult around him. And within decades, just decades after his death, the idea of him being more than a man being divinity started to surface. The scholars knew that. If you go into the world of academia and read the books written by scholars as they trace the history of Buddhism, they will be able to tell you roughly around what period the idea of him being a god, I mean, not god, but divinity, started surfacing in a big way. It's there. You look at the evidence, it's there. Before, at a certain time, he was a man. Eventually, he was more than that. And it get more and more and more. So the idea started evolving. It's all there. Go to the text, go to academia, you'll start to find the evidence for that. Anyhow, uh, for our practice, because this is about us walking the path ourselves, for our practice, we want to know the method. So, for the next 11, nine, 9 lectures, the next 9 lectures, it will be on the method. No, 9 on the method. The first one is this one, 9 others is on the method. The last one is on realization. What it means, how it happens, what, what does it look like? Okay?